A software consultancy solves problems involving management and software engineering. A large company might hire a software consulting company to give an external opinion on software architecture or on organizational structure. Sometimes a consultancy is brought in to help integrate with a new technology or to do a major refactoring. Scaling a software consultancy to meet the varying demands of clients presents a unique challenge. Software companies that make money from media or software as a service or advertising technology are primarily focused on scaling the technology. For a software consulting business, scaling and updating the team is arguably more important than any particular piece of software. Rachel Laycock is the head of technology for ThoughtWorks North America, and she joins the show to discuss how to manage and grow a large software consulting organization. It's a great discussion of culture and technology and how the nature of work is changing. If you're interested in hosting a show for Software Engineering Daily, we're actually looking for engineers and journalists and hackers who want to work with us on content. This is a paid opportunity. You can make $300 if you get your show posted. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com host to find out more. We want to make it easier for people to podcast about software. We want to be your back end for software engineering podcasting. Also, the Software Engineering Daily store is now open. If you want to buy a Software Engineering Daily branded t-shirt, a hoodie, or a mug, you can support the show and brand yourself. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash store to find out more. Now let's get on with the show. Rachel Laycock is the head of technology for ThoughtWorks North America. Rachel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. I want to better understand the business of software consulting. There are there are prestigious uh, management consulting groups like McKinsey that are well known for coming into a company for solving issues around management or workflows or accounting, and software consulting approaches those same issues or similar issues like management issues while also looking into the software architecture of a company. When does a company typically hire a software consulting team? So I think historically they would bring us in at a later point. So, you know, after the McKinsey's um, and whatnot had helped them with their strategy and defining like what the, the business problem is that they might want to solve. Traditionally, a software consultant would come in when they wanted to execute. Um, but as of the last few years, as more and more organizations like traditional organizations have started to become what they call calling themselves technology organization, they're starting to bring in technology consultancies earlier, which means organizations like ThoughtWorks and other technology consultancies um, have had put on many more hats, including things around design and product innovation and also some strategy and organizational change as well. So I think both consultancies like McKinsey have like moved into the, the software execution world and we've moved into more of the design and strategy world. What are the kinds of companies that bring in consultants? What's a typical set of problems they'll have that they want some external viewpoints on? I would say um, up until very recently, it was generally large enterprise um, organizations that would bring in consultancy. So, you know, they already have, they might already have some development and IT teams or infrastructure teams of their own, um, but they need either extra speed or extra support or skills that they don't currently have. Um, and so this could be any industry. I mean, we've worked in finance and media, um, oh, to, just to name a couple, but we've worked in many different industries. Um, and so, and there are obviously um, technology consultancies that work specifically in certain types of industries, but we generally will touch it, touch many. Um, and uh, but recently, what we found is is that some of the startups that you know might be in Silicon Valley might not, as they've matured over current years, much like the enterprises, they've they've created these monoliths that needs somebody to come in and review the architecture and support them and give them, you know, extra ability to execute. So I think the market in terms of what who's calling consultancies is starting to change as these organizations themselves become bigger enterprises. I did a show a while ago about SoundCloud and SoundCloud had brought in some people from ThoughtWorks to reframe 
their architecture and their architectural plan for going forward when they were going to a backends for frontends model. And I found that interesting because SoundCloud is something that people think of as a startup today, but it had reached a point where they wanted external viewpoints and they got them and they they found a way to move forward and some help with the early implementation side of things. Yeah, so you've been at ThoughtWorks for 10 years, I think, or a little more maybe. How, how have the client preferences changed over that period of time? Um, so let me just step back. What do you mean by the, the preferences? Can you just... So like, you know, so the technologies have obviously changed. Maybe they need fewer people on a particular job or maybe they need more people. Um, you know, maybe they're looking for different things. So like, you know, today they're looking to move to cloud or they're, they want microservices, whereas in the past they wanted, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's just it. I mean, in the past they wanted us to help them with agile software delivery. And that's much mm. of what we did. We um, we helped them, you know, either deliver, you know, we would bring teams in on the ground, you know, analysts, um, QAs, uh, developers, project managers, and run, you know, entire projects for them. And they had a very project mindset and we would come in and run a project and then, you know, we would be done. Um, but over time, you know, they want us to look at, you know, overall architecture or think about, you know, the problem that they're trying to solve and what would be the best approach. Um, and so we're kind of, we call it a little bit like moving up the clock face in terms of the decision point um, as to when they need to bring a consultancy in. But there are also other changes in terms of, you know, like you mentioned, there's the technology changes and there's things like, you know, continuous delivery, which we were kind of early adopters and early riders about that topic and have been you know heavily involved in that community for a long time is that you know once you start to move outside of like a pure execution on a particular even if it's not greenfield a particular project it's quite it can be quite sometimes quite easily cordoned off and um, be a small executable piece of work once you move into the continuous delivery space you start looking at you know types of technologies like do we want to move to the cloud? Do we want internal cloud? Do we want, are we going to use external cloud? You start looking at how you manage your data so that you can deploy continuously. You start having to t make big organizational changes because you're not just touching one particular team. You're starting to touch what's usually in an enterprise, a bunch of siloed teams, you know, an infra team over here and a QA team over here um, and a release management team over here. Um, and so what they require from us has changed in scope. Um, and what we've realized is that, you know, someone might call and say, you know, I want microservices or we need help with continuous delivery. And um, we always try and take it back. Well, what are you trying to achieve with this? Um, because these are generally usually quite big changes. Um, and microservices is just one particular architectural style that, you know, could suit you, but it might not be the architectural style. And I think people often jump on, you know, oh, that's going to solve our problem or that's going to solve our problem. And so we try and at least identify like where the clear challenges are. Um, and then the, 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 I guess the last thing is the scope of the things that we work with our clients on has also changed, much like the scope of technology that everyone works on has changed. So we now get engaged in things like data engineering and streaming, because once you start thinking about microservices and you might take an event-driven architecture approach, and then you start thinking about data streaming technologies, and you might start, you might need a data lake, and, and suddenly the scope of what you're actually building, and therefore the scope of the skills that a consultancy needs to have increases. So things have definitely dramatically changed over time from executing on a single project to touching many, many parts of, of a, a, an organization even outside of just pure technology, working with the business side to understand the problem space, um, working with design, um, and just working with other, other areas of our clients' businesses as well. As the, the technology trends change and you have new, newer things like streaming, demands for streaming and event-driven architecture, how do you scale the educational aspects of ThoughtWorks? Because as you have more client demands for that stuff, you want to re-educate and retrain uh, people working at ThoughtWorks. And then it, that, of course, becomes a draw for people to come, a, come to ThoughtWorks, where it's also this educate, there's this educational side uh, of, of the company. 
but how do you you know since you're in a, a managerial perspective of um at, you know near the top uh how do you implement that like getting getting the right skills uh propagated throughout the company so i won't lie it is very challenging and more challenging all the time um, because we're not, you know, a product organization where it's clear the skills that we need and the skills that we need to build. Um, and we have to work with our clients to understand what they need. And then we're looking for patterns where, you know, many clients are asking for similar things and start saying, okay, this is an area that we need to invest in. And people have often, you know, come to ThoughtWorks, come to work at ThoughtWorks because of the, the talent that we've, you know, continued to hire um, and people are like, I want to go work with these people and I want to learn from these people. And one of the, you know, the, the biggest things you'll ever hear a thought worker say is that their favorite thing is, is the people that they get to work with and the things that they get to learn. Um, and so that was always almost by osmosis, I guess, by the, the, who they work with. Um, but recently we've had to start implementing a lot more training um, and get, um, I guess, grow up in terms of having a training organization and understanding, you know, how do we identify the capabilities that our clients need? Um, and which ones do we invest in? Um, and so we're looking at those patterns and, you know, we've got now, you know, big chunks of educational pieces around things like data streaming and uh, things like, you know, native mobile. Um, we also try and create bootstraps to these things. So, you know, rather than reinventing the wheel, there's actually, <laughs> there's actually a thought worker who's currently working on an open source project called Wheel um, to try and bootstrap some of these challenges, which actually allows some of our thought workers to get, when they're kind of learning these kinds of things, to get past the, okay, well, first I have to set up like a build pipeline. Um, and, now, and now I'll get to actually work on some code is to try and bootstrap some of those things as well. Um, but it's, it's absolutely more challenging. And I think from a leadership perspective and one of the roles that I play is, is identifying and prioritizing where do we invest um, and trying to understand like, okay, this is a clear area in the industry that's mm. growing that we need talent in. Um, and like everybody else, we're also trying to hire. Um, so, you know, if we're looking, we have people within the organization that might already have these skill sets and then we can, we, we're all, we've always been a big proponent of pairing. So we can pair them with somebody who's, who's learning, you know, after they've got through some basic training and then, you know, a bit more of that osmosis can happen quickly. But, um, we've also, we're also heavily trying to hire much like everybody else, but the talent market is also just so much more difficult and than, and challenging than it used to be where, you know, I think ThoughtWorks used to be an employer of choice because, you know, the agile, the continuous delivery, you know, the types of thinking that we published, the open source work that we did. Um, you know, if you were really passionate about your craft, people would come to ThoughtWorks and now, there are many organizations that tout, you know, having that passion for craft. Um, and so, you know, that's not our only selling point anymore. So it is very challenging. Getting back to the re-education question. So when a new technology comes out, like a TensorFlow, for example, and you, or Kubernetes, and you look at these things, and you're like, okay, well... This is quickly becoming the de facto thing for container management or the de facto thing for building machine learning, deep learning um, technologies. Uh, I mean, how much time do you give it to do you do you sort of wait to hear from the clients that, hey, we really want somebody on TensorFlow or uh, do you just jump on it immediately or what's. I mean, I, I think part of this is probably, you know, you, you've got, you've also got this media, kind of this media side to ThoughtWorks. I think the ThoughtWorks radar probably helps with this because then you, you, you both give an opportunity for some of the internal consultants to do journalism on their own, but you also have an outlet for other people in the company to come and read and maybe they can read about something like TensorFlow and they can say, oh... Uh, you know, whether I'm going to be working on this at ThoughtWorks or working on this on my own in the future, it would be useful for me to know TensorFlow. And then once you get a critical mass, then you can teach the the masses in a, in a, in a better fashion. I don't know. Help me, help me understand how you look at that and so you can avoid being, you know, because you obviously don't want to jump on a technology too early and then get burned when, you know, p people just drop off and stop using it. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. It comes from many different places in terms of how do we prioritize and when do we kind of pull the trigger on, on mass investment on training. 
Um, so absolutely, we're looking at what our clients are asking for. We're looking at what's happening in the industry, but we also rely on our people for a big chunk of this. You know, we have DevOps specialists inside our organization. We have front-end specialists. We have native mobile specialists. Um, and they really give us a good read on what's happening, what's important, because usually, you know, you can tell by what they're passionate about. But what's interesting about the radar, and the radar was originally um, published as an internal tool, not an external tool. Um, and the reason it was published internally was for us to get a grip as we became bigger and more distributed, like what do we, you know, what, what do we think is good and how do we kind of share our knowledge with each other? Um, and so we've got, you know, maybe thought workers working in Brazil and some working in the US and maybe they have similar challenges, but they're picking different technologies and, and it's kind of became a forum for them to submit their opinion and why, you know, one is, one is preferred over the other and in what circumstance. Um, what we realized is that, you know, we started kind of publishing that externally and realized that people were really interested in that opinion because of the, the breadth of work that we get to do. Um, it's good to hear from, you know, a large consultancy that's very focused on software engineering um, to hear, you know, their perspective on technologies and, and often people, you know, completely disagree with us. But the, we're always very clear that that's our opinion based on, you know, our use um, and what our engineers think is, think is interesting or useful um, mm. and what we've actually used. So we take that into account as well. Um, in terms of like when does it, you know, when do we pull the trigger on the, the mass aspect? That will generally come from our clients. Um, and so, you know, in general, um, they, especially in the enterprises, they're not necessarily the first early adopters of a technology. Um, and many of our people, you know, you, you mentioned SoundCloud earlier. There's a lot of ex-thought workers at SoundCloud. There's a lot of ex-thought workers in many different startups all over the place. And we're still friends with them. So, you know, we can say like, oh, hey, you guys are using that. What do you think about it? Um, mm. And so that we're taking all these different inputs in terms of what's happening in the industry. What are other people using that are in more in the kind of very early adopter space, maybe in the startup world? And then by the time the enterprises start kind of asking questions around that, We've generally usually got an opinion somewhere in our organization that can help us make a decision for them. And then in terms of like when do we pull the trigger on the scaling is really when we can see that there are many people that are asking for this and needing this. But it is a very, you know, it's a fine balance um, because there's certain things that we will just whole, wholeheartedly um, invest in terms of capability. So security is, is kind of like a, just a low bar, right? You just want to make sure that all of your technologists understand, you know, some of the very basic security concerns, um, because that kind of filters through everything. But for something more specialized, like a particular tool, like Kubernetes, or sorry, a particular platform like Kubernetes, um, that's going to take, you know, some time from, from us actually using it and implementing it on a client and having the ability to, for them to, kind of go with adopting it in that instance and also leveraging our network um, in the early adopter space to understand, you know, the value of these tools. So um, one thing that we've always kind of stated at ThoughtWorks is we might not be, I mean, we do innovate on some things, but we're, we might not be the very, very first to come up with an idea or adopt a technology. But one thing we do help um, large enterprises with is adopting some of these things. So we're like, oh, here's what we've learned from our friends over here. Here's, you know, how you can leverage that. Um, but what's interesting now, as I was saying before, is as we're starting to now work with the Silicon Valley organizations who have kind of grown up who have some of the enterprise problems, this is we you can now kind of pass the knowledge back in terms of, you know, what we've learned from doing, you know, helping enterprise clients tackle their monoliths and move to microservices and, and do things like continuous delivery. Uh, because even though, you know, they might have had amazing engineers right from the start, you know, adopting new technologies, you know what it's like, you know, you've got deadlines, there's things that need to happen. Um, and in the startup world, things move very quickly. So they don't always make the best architectural choices right from the very start. You mentioned this this uh, increasing competitive employment market. It it is you know retention is becoming harder, uh, hiring is becoming harder. Um, part of that's driven by the fact that if you're an engineer these days, you have so many options, and there are a number of online marketplaces for work. There's sort of like Uber, like Uber for work type of places it seems like this is where a lot of um 
a lot of the different labor markets in our world are going. Like it turns out that Uber was kind of a um, you know a sign of things to come, where where people actually really like the on demand work style. Uh, you know, they like to just pick up jobs and then do the work and then go do a different job or go sign off and go home. And, um, you know, whether or not people like Uber specifically, that that modality of work seems attractive. Um, and I think, you know, a place like ThoughtWorks probably had, you know, had a lot of people where that appealed to um, before this became a a platform that was enabled by technology because you know, I remember I, I interviewed Jeff Norris from from ThoughtWorks and he was talking about just the if I remember correctly he was talking about the appeal of the novelty the fact that you know you jump from project to project to project and you never get you know you never just get on the same stale technology stack for for three or four years um, which I mean people could take for granted today but you know uh, five to ten years ago. You know, there are a lot of people who worked for four or five or ten years at a job. Uh, now there's you know a lot more switching around, a lot more eighteen months or nine month gigs. Um, so how I mean has has the the culture of ThoughtWorks become more important around that? Because you know the way I think about it, um, you know when you have all these other platforms that people can use to to get the sort of itinerant work, uh, the sort of uh, constant novelty that they might have gotten as a consultant uh, five or ten years ago, when they can get that from a platform, from an online platform, it actually, you know, that kind of raises the stakes for ThoughtWorks, and maybe it makes you think, like, okay, well, now we need to really build a strong culture that people can't get anywhere else. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the culture is really paramount to ThoughtWorks. I mean, it always was, but I think the selling point, like you say, was often your ability to continue change and keep learning new stuff. Um, and also, you know, so we attracted those kinds of people. Um, but I think the, the culture and the people that people get to work with and the relationships they build um, tends to be, you know, it's still a very strong thing. So it's interesting because, you know, I was just chatting to some engineers the other day because I always kind of ask them because, you know, sometimes over in leadership, we have these big ambitious missions about, you know, how we could change the organization and the types of work that we could go after. And, you know, and, and that's one part of our responsibility. And another part of that is, you know, protecting the culture because it's so important to retention and hiring um, and also just making it, you know, the great place to work that's kept people like me around for so long. Um, so the culture is so um, paramount. And I asked one of the engineers, you know, like, oh, just describe your your, fate, your perfect project to me. Um, and I, sometimes you expect them to say, oh, well, it was this tech stack or, you know, we were building this really cool thing for a client. And he said, really, honestly, like that stuff is, is great. But, you know, the key for me is, you know, the people that I get to work with um, and the team that we create um, and, you know, the clarity of what we're what we're building. And, you know, if the tech stack isn't the most exciting thing in the world, then I'm, I'm, I'm OK with it. Um, you know, you want to get challenged every so often. And, you know, that's one of the still advantages that things will change. But I think when you are kind of a, a gun for hire, uh, basically, in the Uber kind of world, um, you're not really, unless it's a very long contract, you're not really going to get the opportunity to kind of really create like a good team and a good culture um, that you could from, you know, a slightly longer running team. And the fact that even though, you know, you do move around from project to project, you're still working with thought workers. Um, and it all, it's always very clear. The attitude is very clear. Our values are very clear. Um, and so it still feels like, you know, it still feels like you work for the same company, even when you can work in very different client environments. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a very challenging market. And um, I think it's, uh, it's kind of the key to how we keep people, but it, it doesn't keep everybody. Right. Well, you know, to what you said about, you kind of build your group of friends or your social group through work, oftentimes, I mean, you know, the further I get away from college, the more I realize, like, oh, there's really not this social anchor uh, built in uh, to to every phase of, of life. I mean, you know, a after college, I worked jobs for a while, and then, you know, you have this interesting social group at, at, uh, at every company you work at. Um, it, but since then, going off and starting this this media company and 
just kind of working remote. I do really miss that social cluster of of people. You know, you, you from different job to job, you have these different clusters of people, and it's like, oh, there's. You know, there's Rachel, like she's the she's the character on the team, and like there's uh, Joseph, he's like the silent one, and you know you get this little dynamic with with every little team that you have, and and then since you know since going off and like working on my own, you know I've, I I I have like kind of a remote team, but it's simply not the same as the office, and I do I I have been thinking a lot about like the value of remote versus office, because even though ThoughtWorks is you know something of a decentralized team, I know. There are offices, you know. There are offices. There are, I've been through the, to the San Francisco office to hang out. Um, what What do you think are the pros and cons of the remote versus in person? Um, you know, we, we kind of this this debate is really starting to heat up, where you've got like companies that are completely decentralized and are having a lot of success, but there must be some cost to losing the uh, centralization of of offices. Absolutely, and. You're asking the right person because in my role, which is across all of North America, I really don't need to go and sit into any of our offices. You know, I do travel, I do and go and visit our clients and I do, you know, make check in with our people and, um, and all of those aspects of my job. But the rest of the time I could, I mean, I'm on calls, um, conference calls a lot of the time. I could just sit at home in my home office. Um, but what I find is that I want to do that when, you know, I have work that I need to concentrate on. Um, but even as introverted as I am, because, you know, I was a software engineer myself for a long time, I, I, I come into the office. Like, I came into the office today of, and I really didn't need to. And, in fact, the office is incredibly quiet today, which is a shame. But I like to be, you know, have a little bit of a social aspect and, and see what's going on and feel like I'm part of something. Um, because it can feel, at least for me, quite isolating. And I know people that work in, you know, organizations like DigitalOcean, where they're, they're, they're completely remote. Um, and, I, and I actually think you can definitely work effectively in that way. There's fewer distractions. And if you have the discipline to figure out, you know, how do you pass information along and make sure everybody's on the same page, you know, there's techniques and processes that can allow you to do that. But you definitely miss on that, you know, um, that camaraderie, that, you know, friendship building, um, and just, you know, feel like that culture aspect that's that's very human, right? That even if you're an extremely introverted person, you might just want, you know, every so often, maybe you only want that 20% of the time, but people do want that some of the time. And so I think with some of these organizations, the key will be, and, and I think it's a really big key to our culture, is we still have offices, you know, and we do things like a, what we call a home office day every Friday, and so I can come into New York on, you know, once a month on a Friday and meet like thought workers who are working all over, you know, our East Market account, accounts, some in New York and some not and get to know, you know, more and more people. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's challenging. And I think having some way for people to still be able to come in. Um, but I know that that's another thing that's sometimes a little bit centra- solved by people that go and work in these kind of shared office spaces that you know don't really belong to anyone or you can hire a desk or you know so you can still have that but again you're still not you're not part of a team you're not working with people who are on a team um and so i think my perspective is is that with anything you know it's not like one is the greatest way to do thing and, and one isn't i think you know five years ago everyone was like open plan offices everywhere and realized that to a lot of people that's incredibly distracting and, and hard to work <laughs> in um and so <laughs> i think there's there's I think for a company to be successful, you know, um, and hire the best talent, they kind of need to have all options available. Like, yes, you can work remote. Yes, we, you know, we have a small office if you want to come in. Because at the end of the day, um, we have an office in New York. If every single person that worked for the New York office was in the office, there wouldn't be anywhere to sit. So we don't have an office that houses everybody. Um, We have a place that, you know, most of the time doesn't get completely full. Occasionally it does. Um, but in general, like a place that if you aren't currently assigned to a client or maybe on that particular client, you're not working on a Friday, if you want to come in and, and still feel connected to ThoughtWorks, you can do. Um, and I think the success for organizations will be in, in, in being able to create the option for both. Isn't that stuff around the open office, in, like it's insane. It's insane how the entire software culture like just everybody moved towards open offices and now we're starting to see all this pushback where it's like 
did we just make a huge mistake? Like, it seems like people just like to work in quiet. I mean, I know personally, like, I just got constantly distracted when I worked in an open office. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely true. And I, I remember facing it myself because when I first joined ThoughtWorks, which was a while ago as a developer, this was the first time I, you know, I worked at a company that was really big on pairing. And so at first I was like, this is awesome. You know, I'm getting to learn all the time. But then I realized that I really sometimes miss like with certain activities just to be able to focus. Um, and the other thing was, is even when I was pairing, if you're in a big open plan office, like there could be like, you know, just very like random meetings going on and, you know, everyone stood around a story wall and talking about a story and, you know, it can get really loud or it can either get loud because it's, you know, a heated debate or it can get loud because people are telling jokes and you're like, it gets really annoying really quickly when you're trying to concentrate or you have a deadline. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think we always in, in our industry, because I think, again, we're still quite a young industry, we just love to kind of swing from one extreme to the other and it's like, one minute we're all in cubicles and, and it's, you know, Dilbert and it's dreary and nobody talks to anybody and, and you're creating <laughs> these like little tiny um, worlds of your own. Um, and then you have all the issues of people not communicating. And then you go to the other extreme, which, you know, is like extrovert paradise, um, but a nightmare for <laughs> if you're like, if you're the kind of person that just wants to concentrate on what you need to get done. And I think what yeah. we're realizing is, is that each, each of those decisions were made for good reason. And so it's like, let's get, as always, just let's get back to basics. Like, yes, we need, we need a way to have discipline around communication and make sure that, you know, a developer doesn't go off doing something for two weeks there and then comes back and it's like, okay, that was totally the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> so we need something that solves that problem. But at the same time, you need to create an environment that, you know, everyone can succeed in. Um, and it is, it is challenging. But um, I can see, I've seen, you know, and this is even something in ThoughtWorks, we have like little phone booths in our big open plan office. So if you need to work very quietly or you need to take a call, you can do that. So you you get both. Um, But also, you know, any consultant who's not, you know, currently assigned to a client or needs to be on the client at the time can also work remotely. You can work from home if you want. Like that is, you know, absolutely a Mm non-issue. So I think that's really the the only way to solve it is to, as I said, is to is to create both. But I mean, we love to swing from one extreme to the other. Um, and I very quickly found that the open plan office was, if it was noisy and busy, just an absolute nightmare place to work. We've had a lot of listeners write in to ask for advice on transitioning from engineering to management, and you have made this transition successfully what are the most useful lessons that you've learned from this transition first of all it's a it's a very challenging transition to move from engineer to manager because it it requires a, a very different skill set um and so one of the things i've realized over time is it's not necessarily the best engineer in the team that's going to make the best manager because um, sometimes the best engineer in the team is somebody who is just potentially like a very you know, huge introvert, wants to very much focus on the tech. Um, and maybe they're not super passionate about learning all of the people's skills. Um, but I think the biggest the biggest um, kind of aha moment for me with moving into that role is um, you no longer like... <sighs> you're no longer solely responsible for like how things are executed. Um, and you have to learn how to get things done by getting other people to do them. Um, and it's a really, it's a really difficult thing to do, especially if you're working with somebody who's potentially more junior or doesn't have experience in, in an area that you do. And you just like, Hey, just give me the keyboard. Like I, I can, I can do this in like, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. And you know that you have to wait for that person to learn and take their time or, or and that's just one example. Um, but also in order to get people to, to execute on the things that need to happen that you're responsible for because, you know, you're, you're the manager, um, but they are actually going to do a big chunk of the work, maybe not all of it, maybe you will still, you know, do some coding depending on your role and where you're at, but it's, there's an incredible amount of, you know, people encouragement and influencing and, and thankfully we've moved away from the command and control world of like, I'm going to tell you like the 10 things to do and you can go away and do it and come back when you're done. <laughs> um, and I think most engineering cultures hopefully aren't too much like that anymore. And so what you realize is that you end up being this, this kind of coach um, to, to all the people because you're accountable for certain results or a certain product line or, or whatever it may be. There's things that you need to get done. 
And you might have a team of like, you know, five, 10 or 20 or 100 people that need to do these things. And you need to figure out, well, how are you going to create the right structures? And how do you delegate effectively? And how do you understand, you know, where people's strengths and weaknesses are and which stuff can kind of maybe like they can fail a little bit on and which stuff they can't. And it becomes, it's a completely different skill set to get your head around all of that. Um, Mm. and I've had, uh, interestingly, um, an ex thought worker engineer who's now, I think a director, um, I forget which organization, but one of the startups in New York. And he said, wow, like I just had no idea how much people stuff was involved in your job. And I said, that is my job. Like I talk to people all day long. Um, and what I'm trying to do is move along all the things that I need to move, you know, need to move along because when you're a manager in any, in any respect, your job is not to be like the best contributor. Your job is to create many great contributors and then also create future leaders who you see the potential to lead, not necessarily being the best engineering the team. I think you you have to go from your IDE being your portal into productivity to email or Slack being where you get your creative work done, essentially. Yeah. And, and the real challenge is, is like, is getting the feedback and measuring it and then really, and feeling like, do I own any of that success? I mean, I, I find it, you know, weird when I go through my appraisals with my boss and, and it's like, you know, you reflect like, what did I do last year? And I'm like, well, I mean, I can't really claim ownership for that. And I can't really claim ownership for that. And and I ended up listing, you know, 10, 20 things that, you know, I moved along or, you know, hit, helped people hit goals on that all kind of fed up to overall goals that I might have been accountable for. And it's really, it feels so weird to be like, oh, these, are, I achieved these things. Like, well, I didn't, you know, I, I helped other people achieve these things. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I think about management is uh, it's almost like sometimes it can be like the ske- like this problem of scheduling, like We've had scheduling in computer science for so long, nobody's solved it. And you're, it's like you're constantly trying to, not only are you, you, you want to figure out the right tasks to move the ball forward across an engineering team, but you also have to figure out the, like something that they don't really teach you anywhere. You have to read books to figure this out or to or talk to people unless you just have insane intuition is you have to figure out how to ask people to do things and uh, the right words and the right time. Like if you ask somebody, you know, at 4 p.m. on a Friday, hey, you're going to have to do this next week. Like maybe that's the wrong time to ask them. Uh, You know, maybe you want to ask them like on Tuesday morning when they're fully caffeinated and optimistic about stuff. It's like the timing is so important. There's all these little people, people issues that, that take adjustment. It's incredibly nuanced, and I had a new uh, a new leader manager um, ask me this literally this very question like last week. They were like, "How do I get people to do stuff without telling them to do it?" Um, and I said, "You know, well, first of all, you're a consultant, so you've got a head start. You know, like, what is your job as a consultant? And it's more in a consultancy, and and it's just that word, right? You're consulting. You're not just." doing you're not just executing a part of uh, any engineer or anyone that's hired in ThoughtWorks is they have to learn some consulting skills um, and consulting skills is very much you know understanding what is the client need or what is this person's need and what we what are we trying to achieve and how do we kind of map that up and it's exactly your point like when's the right time to have a meeting with that person and when's the right time to bring it up and are they the kind of person that you know you need to spend a little time talking about what you did at the weekend with or are they very kind of direct and they just want you to get to the point and you kind of have to learn all of these things when you're a consultant so I think when you move into those roles at ThoughtWorks it's I guess it's easier for us to identify people that are that could make good leaders of you know maybe the design group or or technology leaders or leaders um, around capabilities because it's like those people that can do it on the client you're like okay so you're kind of halfway there um, and now you basically have to turn a lot of those consulting skills, you know, in, into what you, what you need your team and what the people on your team to achieve. Um, and so I end up, you know, telling people, I mean, I said to somebody yesterday, you know, you need to read Influence, Science and Practice. And it's like, um, and I remember a few years ago, I was working on a client and um, it was when my uh, leader or manager had, had told me to read this book and I had it on my desk and he looked at it and he was like, oh dear. He's like, that's what you guys are reading? 
<laughs> um, and he he's a contractor and he's like that's just like evil sales tricks and I'm like oh um, <laughs> I was like actually it's really fascinating and he, he said it is and, and there's many books like that you know around how do you influence people and consulting skills and and it really is like you say you kind of have to go back and you do need to learn those basics and then you have to start figuring out how to apply them and, and I always say when people say that they they start to feel like dirty they're like oh no I don't want to learn all these like evil sales and consulting skills and I'm like well you're using it for good not for evil if that makes you feel any better about it but you're dealing with people and you need to understand what motivates them um, and you know the time of day that you ask them or the type of activity that you ask them to do will determine whether it's successful so you know you need to make sure you ask the right people to do the right things the things that you're finding out what they're passionate about all of these different aspects to it um, and it's uh, I think you get the instincts for it after a while when you kind of you practice you learn the theory um, and then it, it seems to come naturally. But I think even after a while, you know, you, you meet difficult people who have difficult challenges and you have to think about how do I motivate this person and how do I, you know, make them happy and, and but also ensure that they get the job done. And it's, uh, it's very, very different from being the best engineer on the team. Well, in, in terms of it, you know, being malicious or manipulative. I mean, people would never say that about the communication that you use to uh, make an API call. Like if you made an API call uh, or if you wrote some code in XML these days, people would probably be like, why are you writing that in XML? You should write it in JSON. Like it's just going to be friendlier to work with in JSON. The same is true for interpersonal communication. You know, you don't want to ask people to do stuff in the wrong way just ask them to do it in the at the more timely more efficient fashion um anyway so so specifically from the point of view of uh managerial stuff around uh, consulting um how do you how do you think about getting consultants and the full-time employees at the companies where you know a consultancy is working with how do you get those two different groups of employees working harmoniously together? It can be very challenging um, because sometimes the culture of where these employees work is very different to our culture. So you might have, you know, they've potentially worked in a very traditional, non-agile, you know, waterfall type of style for a very long time. They're used to with putting their headphones on and working alone. Um you know, they're potentially being measured by weird metrics that cause weird, you know, weird KPIs that might cause um, problematic behavior. Um, and so there's a lot to, to unpack. Um, and so this is why we end up with kind of layers of support on even, you know, engineering teams on the ground who are, who are delivering something that's, you know, fairly straightforward in terms of what the need is. Um, if we're delivering alongside client um, developers and, and client analysts or client product people um, or even contractors, figuring out um, how to get the team to gel can be a very challenging aspect of that. And sometimes it goes really well and sometimes it doesn't because, you know, people are people and, you know, ThoughtWorks is known for our technology skills. Um, and I think everybody is always learning like the best way to work effectively with other people. Um, but, you know, a role that I've often played when I've been a leader on those accounts is, you know, helping our consultants see things from, you know, other perspectives, you know, maybe they're, they're excitable, um, young, very passionate, very pedantic um, about you know something in the code base, um, and they might be working with a contractor or a client developer who's very experienced but not experienced in you know TDD, for example, or in you know event-driven architecture or something that we're implementing. Um, and so you have to be careful of the nuances there. And, and I think the trick is, is is you need to make sure you don't get people on the defensive and um, trying to assure people that, you know, you're not here to steal their job, you're, you're here to help them. Um, you want them to learn, but you don't want to, you know, um, patronize them. Um, it's, it's, it's a very challenging aspect to it. And that's why, you know, we, we have um, uh, 
specialists in our organization who look at things like you know organizational change management and there are and I always say and he says as well is there's in every engagement that we have with a client there is always an aspect of that um, and it may be at the very um, low level like just how do we work effectively with their development teams but it can go all the way up to how do we you know restructure their organization around a way that you know it's going to be more effective for their business and so it's it's almost like different levels of needing to do that kind of change management as opposed to like you do it or you don't um, and so when it's at, you know very much just the teams on the ground um, it can be around coaching our people on you know just basic consulting skills and and keeping up to date and, and taking and understanding the perspective of where the people are coming from that they they're trying to essentially change because we've been brought mm. in to do something that's potentially very different to what they've done before but also even the way that they're doing things. I don't know to what degree you can talk about this, but I'm actually really curious about the economics of a consulting company. Can you talk at all about like the sales process or like how the client engagement works and how you come to a, a price of a specific engagement? Um, slightly out of my field of expertise, but um, I can certainly try and answer it. Um, so we have, I mean, we have some fairly default engagement models, especially if it's a fairly traditional, you know, come in, um, help us with delivery, help us set up, you know, continuous delivery. Um, you know, you might need to do a little upskilling of our teams while we're at it. Um, and we have some fairly, you know, standard engagement models, which have standard pricing associated with them. Um, and we have, you know, there's a bunch of spreadsheets that operational and finance and salespeople, you know, work through to identify you know, what's the best um, leverage model? Leverage is a big word you hear a lot in consulting. Um, you know, how how close are we to kind of the pyramid shape of having, you know, fewer senior people and, and more junior people? But that's just one engagement model and it totally depends on, you know, what the client is asking us to do. We have some engagement models which require, because it's, you know, an architectural assessment, for example, lots of senior people. Um, and so they, this, the profitability of those engagement models is all kind of worked out, you know, beforehand. Um, and we obviously have a, we have what we call a deal review system where very senior leaders, you know, either from the technology space, the product space, you know, all the different, you know, areas, mobile, whatever it may be, will review these things as they come in to make sure that they, they also make sense. Um, you know, that we can deliver on the things that we're going to deliver on with the people that they're suggesting that, you know, we deliver with. Um, and it, all, it goes through legal and, and all of those, you know, all of those just logistical things need to occur. So there's a big review process. And there's also like back and forth and negotiation with clients. I think in terms of like, how do we engage and what are our engagement models? I expect they're very standard, very similar to other consulting um, organizations. And I think how do, we, how do we make money is really on how utilized our people are. Um, so we don't want them what we call sitting on the beach um, because then they become, you know, an operational cost. And then how, how much we can keep, you know, costs low. And it's, you know, it's pretty standard for, for a consulting organization. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of my view of the world from where I sit. Yeah. No, fair enough. How do you see consulting changing in the next 10 years? That's a really great question because I recently talked to, a, a, I think it was a Forrester analyst. Um, and in the past, the ideal um, consulting model was always the pyramid. So you have, as I was saying before, you have somebody very senior and then you have a few people in the middle. And, you know, the more junior people you can get on the ground, the more um, kind of leverage the team is, um, the better profitability. Now, the problem is, is that what's changing is both the client need the breadth of knowledge that's needed in the industry, and the breadth of things that we're doing for our clients, everything from, you know, front-end development all the way to kind of data engineering work, we're, you know, data science, you know, we're growing our capabilities much like they need to grow theirs. So what's changing is, is it gets very complicated to have this simplistic leverage model when you need lots of different types of, of capabilities at different points in the engagement. Um, and so, you know, some of our engagement models have started to change where we think a lot, and I know consultancies already do this, about how do we um, kind of build in time for specialist skills if needed um, or, you know, bring in our mobile lead um, to kind of 
de define the architecture for the mobile so that you know the rest of the team can kind of move forward um, as we kind of build out those skills. So what's actually really changing is instead of it being a pyramid, they're predicting that it will turn into more of a diamond shape where you still have you know a small number of very senior you know architects and, and leaders kind of running the account or the engagement um, and you have a small number of kind of generalist consultants um, and then in the middle you have this kind of specialist group um, who deal with the different specialists around the organization and what's interesting is for, for ThoughtWorks is we've always kind of touted you know you need to be a generalist you need to be able to do full stack um, you know, we, the T-shaped people, as in like people that can do full stack with, you know, a little specialism here and there, um, are the easiest, you know, not just for us to, you know, help our clients, but also for clients, for their developers. That's what they should be, should be going after. Um, but what full stack is 10 years ago is very different to full stack now. You know, full stack was, you know, okay, you're a Java developer, you can do Oracle and SQL and you can do JavaScript and jQuery. And, it, and, and it's, that's a very simplistic model, but it wasn't that far off. You know, being a full stack developer wasn't the hardest thing in the world. Uh, these days, it's like, well, which do you mean like a JavaScript kind of full stack? Um, or uh, when, you, when you say mobile, do you mean like native or not native? Do you mean Android or Apple? I mean, these things are just very, very different. Um, and so I think like, um, I, I have a, a one of our mobile leads here. You would say she's a generalist mobile developer because she can do all of, all of those different things. Um, and she, in her prior, you know, earlier in her career, she did like Java and whatnot. So she is, you know, a generalist with with specialist skills. But you know, could I throw her on a, a data engineering project? <laughs> I don't think so. So, um, you know, I think the consulting game is having to adapt to that and change our engagement models, and we all are. Um, in order to to meet those needs that our clients have. One exciting trend that I see is the rise of these high-level APIs and just how good they're getting. You can, you can realistically imagine a future in 10 years where you, you basically everybody's just like writing a little bit of JavaScript as glue code between really high-level APIs like image recognition APIs and then yeah, Amazon's got some API that shuttles all your data into this thing that's really easy to work with, and you can visualize it all in one place, and you just write a little blob of JavaScript to shuttle it to the next place, and you know, you've got very easy-to-work-with drag-and-drop UI configuration. I, it seems like things could get so so much easier to work with that it would almost become like more of a design a design challenge in the future. I think that could be really interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think sometimes when you think about that, it's like, isn't that like from like 10, 20 years ago when it was like just plug and play <laughs> yeah. enterprise service buses and, and immediately you just kind of go, oh my God, no, like that can't be a good thing. But like we've definitely matured and these, what these APIs and this plug and play ability is very different to what it was. And so, you know, I think in that kind of future, like what the role of a, a developer or a software engineer will be could be very, very different, especially when you start thinking about the impact of, you know, machine learning over time. And so it's it's hard to predict. And, you know, people that are starting out now, and I do get asked this sometimes, like, should we be learning to be like a software engineer now? Because will we even, you know, have a, have a job in, in 10 years? And my perspective is, is like, oh, there's going to still be a lot of software hanging around <laughs> in 10 years. Um, so it could, you know, it could be a while before that happened. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And the, the changes in technology are just way surpass even what I thought when I got into the industry, which is, you know, why I thought it was so interesting. I was like, oh, this is like a really new and very changeable industry. And there's a lot happening. Um, and it's it's just exploded. So it's, yeah, it's it continues to, to be very interesting to see what happens. Rachel, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation, really interesting. Oh, thanks for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed it.